The first lesson this morning comes to us from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 9. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from the plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Spiritual health requires an awareness of both our own sinfulness and God's unlimited love for us. For modern ears, those ears of the current time, inside and outside of the Christian family, this passage in, in Luke seems to characterize a sort of faith that is at best strange and irrelevant and at worst misleading and dangerous. When the disciples ask Jesus to increase their faith, he, he speaks to them about a faith that, that even in the smallest quantity has the power to perform miracles and then goes on to admonish the disciples to understand themselves as worthless slaves. Miracles don't happen, happen too often in sanctuaries of the churches that we attend these days. How many of us could actually claim the power to transplant trees 
or to act supernaturally in another way. I'm sure Don Christensen would love me to be able to say, move, and that tree would be replanted somewhere. The true miracle, though, is in Jesus' saying, it's not, it's not about overcoming natural laws, but about the presence of true faith, a faith that takes hold of the God with whom nothing is impossible, as Luke stated at the beginning of the gospel. The, the Heidelberg Confession characterizes true faith accordingly, not only as certain knowledge, but also as a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the disciples ask for greater faith, knowing the difficult times lie ahead of them, Jesus responds by asking for something small, a trusting faith the size of a mustard seed. So that the faithful follower of Jesus might not look at themselves judging their own faith, relying on its own strength or being scared by what its weakness is, but look instead at the one they follow. We follow. We know that our faith is in that sense not ours, but the work of the Holy Spirit binding us all together in Christ. That is the true miracle. That's the true miracle. This kind of faith is, of course, nothing to be admired, possessed, or even stowed away, but a faith to be lived out, a useful and active faith, a faith sustained that sustains the life of, of the disciple as a life of the service to God. Before we can reflect upon the nature of the faithful service, though, it's important to remember yet again that Christian faith is faith in Christ Jesus who came among us as the one who serves. He serves. The Lord is a servant. And that's what Karl Barth called him, servant God. Only when we, only we have recognized this can we can begin considering Jesus' description of the Christian life using the first century institution of slavery as an example for the relationship between God and the Christian believer. Jesus does not. Jesus does not, and this is, this is crucial. He does not prescribe a social order of slave and master for all times and all societies. Rather, rather, he uses the example to this morning to, to state his point. The Christian attitude is one of dutiful service, willing obedience with and to God, owing nothing to the believer. Does that sound like good news to you? Calvin thinks so. He, he, he reprimands all human beings for their wicked arrogance of trusting in their own merits. But he immediately goes on to explain God's grace in terms of God's pleasure in becoming willing, a willing debtor. Something he calls the height of the divine goodness towards us. The passage this morning indeed denies all human merits, 
all human claims upon God. But the worthless slaves whom, whom we meet here are the very same who receive God's grace in Christ as a gift and an extraordinary, extraordinary recognition of their worth. Who among us does not want more faith? Most of us are not surprised at the disciples' plea that Jesus give them more. There, there is a guilt-ridden part of us that is not particularly surprised at Jesus' scoffing reply. If you had even this much faith, he tells them, pinching his fingers together, you would be able to do anything that you wished. And we hang our heads just like the apostles, suffering the scolding that we get and we know that we deserve. If there's one thing we've, we've come to expect from, from Jesus, it's the constant reminder of, of how short we fall. But what if Jesus is not scolding us at all? What if he's not scolding the disciples? What, what if he's not clicking his tongue and shaking his head over their lack of faith, but speaking these words in a voice of encouragement and love as one who would give up his life for his friends and for us? If we listen again to this exchange with new ears, we hear Jesus' answer to the disciples with kindness and maybe even a bit of a smile. Why? You, you don't need more faith, he says. Even this much faith is enough. If we hear Jesus, Jesus speak with the voice of love, we hear him telling the disciples that, in fact, they already have, we already have enough faith to do what is ever required of us. Jesus has told his disciples and us in the verses that preceded the ones that we read this morning that discipleship is more demanding than they would ever imagine. That they are accountable to one another. In fact, drowning in the sea would be preferable to causing a brother or sister to go astray. If they're wronged, he insists that they are to draw from a bottomless well of forgiveness. It's no wonder that the disciples cry out, increase our faith. They're not sure that they are up to this task, this ministry that Jesus has called them to do. We, we may not feel that we're up to the task, but Jesus changes the question, how much faith is enough to what is faith for? What is faith for? He tells them through image and story, you already have the faith that you need. Now fulfill its purpose. Live your faith. Live it as servants. Now go and serve and wash each other's feet. The master, God, expects the servants, us, 
to perform our duties and, and the servants and in turn have faith, have faith that when their work is done, they will receive nourishment and rest and protection. To understand faith in this way then is to understand it as a way of life. Faith is a way of life. And those who serve God do so with a sense of duty and delight, living life according to God's commandments. We live a life of obedience because, as the psalmist sings, your decrees are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. We serve God and we serve one another. Not for bonus points, not to tip the scale, and not only because God expects it, but because we know that we know that God has shown us the way to abundant life. In other words, to, to question whether one has enough faith is to miss the mark. The issue at stake is how we live together. How do we keep from leading one another into the valley of the shadow of death? How do we manage to keep forgiving one another over and over and over again? We do it not because we have superhuman reservoirs of this faith stored up, but because God gives us what we need to flourish abundantly in a faithful community. In the economy of faith, we, we who serve depend upon a benevolent master who not only expects us to obey, but gives us all that is required for us to do. This view of faith saves the church from all sorts of missteps. In this divine economy, faith is less about personal fortitude and more about mutual tolerance as we keep on learning that we are all in this together. We're in this together. A community that lives out this sort of faith is not afraid to ask questions, express doubts, or even show weakness. Nor is it afraid to value mercy over fairness or to forgive one another's failings, even when patience wears thin. In this economy of faith, it's not stockpiled in a storehouse for the working of spiritual wonders, but is lived out as obedience to a just and loving God, trusting in the one with whom we are in a relationship with. And we relinquish any illusions of self-reliance, acknowledging that faith cannot be measured. Faith cannot be measured only enacted. In this economy of faith, we, we discover more than we dare to imagine about divine blessings. As we walk with and in God's way together, we find that the God who expects much from us also promises much. And that wonder of wonders, the rightful master of us all came first and foremost not to be served but to serve us. If you had the faith 
the size of a mustard seed, you could do and accomplish great things, such as rearranging a landscape, or as Matthew makes even more dramatic, promise to move a mountain. It's easy to love this story, the tiny seed with supernatural power to accomplish great things. The point is not that we need more faith, rather that we need to understand that faith enables us to do God's work and enables God to work in a person's life in ways that defy ordinary human experience. The saying is not about being able to do miraculous works or spectacular tricks. On the contrary, Jesus assures the disciples and us that even with a little faith, we can live by his teachings on discipleship and do all the work, all the ministry that he calls each of us to perform. And we do all of this because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit that we receive at our baptism. The one we receive in the triune God. And we remember it at this table, his table. We remember what he did for us as Jesus gave his life for us so that our sins might be forgiven and we receive eternal life. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Ken Goodrich, and I'm humbled that you took the time to listen to this podcast. I pray that the Holy Spirit moves you to ministry and that if you don't have a church home, that you are able to find one. Please feel free to tune in on Tuesdays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 12.20 p.m. for our Bible studies, on Thursdays at 10 a.m. for our Learning Center courses, and of course on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. for our worship. Just go to fpclc.org to see all our various programs and events. Thanks again, and God bless you, and keep you safe. May God embrace you and keep you in his countenance. Peace.